0: exciting narrative before us. Look with me, if you will, Acts 27 and verse 1. And when it was decided that he should sail for Italy, or that we should sail for Italy, rather, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking, <clears throat> and embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with a difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lazia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul had said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the sea wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Calda. we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up they used supports to undergird the ship then fearing that they would run aground on the Sartis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along since we were violently storm-tossed they began the next day to jettison the cargo and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us and no small tempest lay on us all hope of our being saved And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight... The sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind. They... "'Made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. "'The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. "'The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape, "'but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. "'He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, "'and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. "'And so it was that all were brought safely.'" to land. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And so we pray that today we would hear your word. Speak to us, Lord. Speak through your written word. Use your your spoken word, Lord, to, to cause us to hear your truth. Move in our hearts. Work among us, Lord, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Paul had been in Caesarea now for over two years. It's been no short waiting game. He knew he was going to Rome. The angel had come to him and said, You will go to Rome. He knew it was going to happen. But he had to be wondering, you know, when? When is this actually going to occur? Felix hands the case off to Festus. More time goes on. He's still in prison. Festus trying to figure out what he should do, gets Agrippa's input, and finally, Paul is headed to Rome. It's a challenging time of the year, as the text tells us, and in the Mediterranean, as the fall went on, the seas grew worse, to the point that at this point in history, all sailing ceased between November and February. And so Paul knew this was coming. He knew that there was danger. He was not a sailor, but he had plenty of experience sailing. He had sailed many miles through the Mediterranean in particular. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote that he had been shipwrecked three times and had once spent a night and a day adrift at sea. So, Paul had some experience, you know. He knew what he was talking about. He had been there. You know, it's kind of like getting struck by lightning. You may meet somebody that's been... Struck by lightning once, but three times, you know, this, Paul has been in three different shipwrecks. You might ask, why? Why would God allow this to happen? I mean, Paul is, is God's apostle, his one sent with the message of the gospel. Why does he have to go through all of this? If you think just of his experience that we've looked at in these last chapters, you know, he goes to Jerusalem. He faces opposition there. He goes quietly in this case. It's the Jews from Thessalonica that come over and stir up riots. Ends up, Paul has to be arrested just to be protected. He stays in incarceration. Finally, the Jews are ready to to mob him. A a group of 40 of them pledged to kill him. They're not going to eat anything or drink anything until they kill him. Finally, he gets moved to Caesarea to protect him. But then he just sits there. Felix doesn't know what to do with him. He gets removed from office. Festus comes in. Paul's still in prison. Finally, he appeals to Caesar. And it's at this point that he is now being sent to Rome. At least at this point, he deserves a fair journey, right? A smooth journey, a straight shot. Lord, please, after all this that I've been through, can I just fly nonstop to, to Rome? That would be really nice. Business class would be a nice upgrade. Paul doesn't get any of that. So if Paul was God's apostle, his anointed one, sent out with his message, why wouldn't the trip have been smoother? And maybe you think of your own life and the difficult things that you've been through and you wonder how many things have gone wrong. We talk about Murphy's Law, you know, if something can go wrong, it will, and we joke about that. I think Paul could have easily joked about that when we look at his life. Maybe you think that describes your own life. I know that I've tempted at times to feel this way, to feel a sense of self-pity when things go wrong and think, uh, Murphy's Law, if something can go wrong, it will. But as we look at Jesus' own words, we hear that this life that we're called to is not a life of ease. Jesus says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Why does it have to be this way? We might say, well, it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, if we think about it, when God justifies us, he could just go ahead and glorify us. I mean, wouldn't it be nice just to get out of here like Elijah, just straight to heaven? But there's this one piece of the puzzle that's missing, that God in his good and sovereign plan chooses not only to justify us and adopt us and glorify us, but there's one piece in there that he also chooses to do, and that's sanctify us. And that's the piece of the puzzle that is hard sometimes to swallow. This is what God is doing in our lives, including using the storms of life. There's a false gospel out there, the prosperity gospel, that says if you just believe, if you just have enough faith, that God will give you a smooth life, that he'll bless you with material wealth and with good health. But this not only goes against the examples that we see in Scripture, including Paul's life, but it goes against the very teaching of Scripture as well. There's no simple answer. There's no simple answer. Life is hard, it doesn't always make sense. For us to talk about this, we'd have to go back to the garden, we'd have to look at the fall, we have to look at the ramifications of the fall. And don't we all feel that? You know, even in creation, we see it groaning. We see Florence come through. We see the fallout that's continuing to happen up the East Coast. You who've lived here in Florida long know hurricanes well. And today we're looking at a hurricane in the Mediterranean. We would have to talk about sanctification and what its purpose is in our lives and why God designed it to work this way. And yet we see in our own life and in our own experience that time and experience does matter. There is value in time and experience. You think of that uh, in the military, that young lieutenant who shows up and he's got the training and he's got the rank on his shoulders, but if he doesn't listen to the sergeants who've been at it 10 or 15 years longer than he has, he's going to create a mess, isn't he? There's a sense of experience that we need in our lives. And there's a sense that God takes us through this. And we see this in a a story like Pilgrim's Progress. Even though we know we're justified and our salvation is sure and there's nothing meritorious about the sanctification process, that God in His providence wants to sanctify us. So while this doesn't answer all of our questions of why life is hard, we do see that God uses the journey. He includes the storms not only to shape us and to grow us, but to cause us to come to the end of ourselves so that we recognize that we have no leg to stand on except for the mercy of God in Christ. If the storms do nothing else in our lives, the storms accomplish that. Storms bring us to the end of ourselves because all of us have a savior complex All of us are trying to do for ourselves what we can't do for ourselves. We all have gospel amnesia. We all forget what Christ has done for us, and we think somehow we have to contribute. And God often uses storms to bring us back to the place where we see that we only have one Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. And of course, storms do much more than that. So as we consider this storm that Paul is going through, I hope that you will not see God as mean and vindictive, and wanting to hurt Paul, or you think in your own life somehow trying to get you, but instead see a loving Heavenly Father who knows exactly what you need to help you discover that you are not your own Savior. And exactly what you need is this, to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And storms take us there. So let's look at the storm. They take off from Caesarea, if you're looking at the Mediterranean as a big oval, you know, it's over on the right hand side on the eastern shore. And they can't just take off and sail across. There are a number of reasons for this. Part of it was they were on a, a very small ship. It could only go out so many miles from shore. But the bigger issue was the wind, the time of the year. They couldn't just start heading west because the wind was coming from the west. There was no government transport ship, at least. Not available at this time. I don't know if they existed. There were probably Roman military ships, but probably not transport ships. And so they just caught a fare on a merchant ship that was going in the general direction that they wanted to go with the hopes of catching a ship that they would connect to later on. And because of this, Aristarchus is able to come along for the ride. And we see in in verse uh, 2 that he joins Paul. So Paul has some companionship. And then, of course, Luke is there as well. Luke never mentions himself, but we always know he's there in the passage when he starts using the we language, right? And so here, well, there's two reasons, the we language and then all the detail. Luke, when, when, when Luke's there, we get a lot more detail, and we certainly do in this case as well. And as they sail along, they arrive to Myra, which is up in modern-day Turkey. They're now facing the open ocean. They have to go across. They need a bigger boat, um, so they got, they, they, they got a ship out of Alexandria, a big grain boat that they would get on. I say big. It's not big by modern you know, comparison to boats. Uh, but it's larger than what they've been on, uh, considerably safer, can go out in the open water. But the journey has already been frustrating. Paul, or Luke rather, mentioned several times that it's been slow. I mean, they're just barely inching along barely making progress and so they decide to s- sail south. Let's go down to Crete. Crete sits just off the coast of Greece toward the middle of the Mediterranean and the thought was if we get down there maybe we'll pick up some favorable winds, verse 7, and move faster along. But time is ticking away. It's now moving into the fall Luke mentions that the fast has already gone by, the Day of Atonement is what this refers to. This would have occurred uh, around this time uh, in history, would have been in early October. So they're pushing the envelope, really, of that November cutoff to, to close the doors of the ship and move it to land. And there simply wasn't enough time. Paul recognized this. This wasn't, there's no indication this was divine revelation. Paul knew just from his own experience that they did not need to make this trip any further. They needed to find a safe harbor. And so, in verse ten, he says, "Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be without be with injury, rather and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of lives." There's no. Um, you know, the, the 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 reasoning, we don't get all of the reasoning for why things happen, but Luke does give us a few clues here and there as to why they kept moving on. I mean, he talks about uh, Julius not listening to Paul at this point. He listens to the ship's pilot. Um, the harbor wasn't really suitable for winter. Uh, we know from other historical... Uh, sources that the harbor wasn't a preferred harbor for sailors. It was a ghost town. There wasn't anything fun to do there. And that was a part of the reason as well. And so it says the majority decided to go on. They thought if they could just get to Phoenix, that that would be a better harbor. And it seemed at first like a good idea. They begin to receive uh, some some wind. They start making some headway in verse 13. And then the storm comes. And it comes upon them suddenly. You might think when you're out to sea that, um, you know, you see a long way, right? The horizon's far, far away. And so if storms are going to come, you're going to have plenty of warning and see them. But if you've ever been out sailing, even just off, off the coast here, uh, and have ever been caught by a storm, you know how quickly it can just pop up and seem to come out of nowhere. Uh, I went sailing with a friend of mine when I was in the Navy and learned very quickly that he didn't have much experience sailing, um, We were fine as long as we were in the harbor, but the minute we went out into the open ocean, I literally feared for my life. Everything got bigger. The waves got bigger. Everything got bigger. And a storm came upon us, and it was sudden. I never saw it. It was just, boom, it was there. And by the time we realized that the black clouds were there, we probably shouldn't be out here in open water and attempted to begin to turn the ship around. With my zero experience and his little experience, we were in trouble really fast and I, again, thought I was going to die. Paul was in a storm much, much worse. And in fact, the word here, the Greek word, typhonikos, is where we get our word typhoon. It literally means whirlwind. Now, we're familiar with hurricanes here On the east coast of the US, they come. It's that time of the year. You who've lived in Florida for a long time are way familiar with hurricanes. But do hurricanes happen in the Mediterranean Sea? You know, we lived there for three years, and I was trying to remember did we ever have a hurricane? And I don't think we did. But I was wrong. We had two when we were there. But they just don't come that far east to Cyprus. So we never experienced them. Um, They're rare. There have only been about a hundred in the last uh, uh, 50, 60 years of these tropical like storms. Not all of them form into hurricanes. But they call them, they nickname them Medicanes, Mediterranean hurricanes. And they do happen. And the two that have happened most recently, guess where they occurred? Right here where we're looking in the text today. And get, guess what piece of land both hurricanes hit in the last two occurrences in the Mediterranean? Malta, exactly where we see this storm. So what is happening here for Paul is he gets caught in this storm and it literally drives his ship for weeks. They're in this storm. This would be like getting caught in a hurricane off the coast of Africa and riding all the way across the Atlantic. I mean, you're, just, you're in it, you're stuck, you can't get out of it. And if you've ever, especially if you're prone to seasickness, and you've ever been out on a boat, and you're, 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 you're nauseous, and you're sick, and so forth. You just want it to stop, and it won't, and it doesn't. And so the misery, not only the fear, uh, but the misery that these people were in was tremendous. And we see it goes from bad to worse, and it picks up very quickly. In verse 15, we gave way to the storm, and we were driven along, Luke writes. So they just... They had to pull the sails down, and they were just in for the ride, moving along. We managed to secure the ship's boat in verse 16. This would have been a small boat. They pulled behind them. Think of lifeboat kind of size. It would have been a pilot boat that they used to get into shallower water. And if they had left it behind them, it would have battered the ship. And so they, in all the wind and the waves and the storm, had to work together to get this boat up on the deck. Verse 17, they used support to undergird the ship. They literally tied ropes around the ship, an old wooden ship. The planks begin to come apart as it's beat by the the wind and the waves. And then they begin to jettison the cargo. It doesn't matter anymore. We've got to survive here. So we've got to get the ship lighter so we don't hit anything. We don't want it sitting too deep in the water. And so the grain, this was a grain ship. They would have began to throw the grain overboard. Again, probably an all-hands-on-deck effort to work To accomplish this. In verse 19, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. This would have included the mast of the ship and all of the sails. Again, an all-hands-on-deck effort. A mast would have been a tree-sized beam, big, heavy, obviously would have lightened the ship and would have accomplished what they wanted to do, but they all had to work together. And then by, by verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, we realized no small tempest was upon us all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You get that, that sense of just despair. They all thought they were going to die. And so in the middle of all of this, God gives mercy. He gives His word. He gives a promise of deliverance. Now you and I might wish that we had angelic visits to give us answers to situations and circumstances I mean, come on, it would be nice, wouldn't it? If God sent us his messenger with, this is what's going to happen, this is what you need to do. But I would argue that what we have in the completed canon of Scripture is better. I think it's better. First of all, it's complete. We have the whole counsel of God revealed to us in Scripture, not just a single message about a single circumstance. Second, we can have it with us at all times. Now more than ever, right? I mean, we got it on our phones, and our pockets now. You know, you think of a time in your life when God did something incredible, and your response was, I will never doubt God again. This is incredible. But you've doubted, and so have I. You see, memories fade, and this was true for Paul too. But the Word of God never fades. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Additionally, I mean, we can study it, we can cross-reference it, we can meditate on it, we can be refreshed by it again and again and again. Yeah, your Bible is better than an angelic visit. That's my argument. But, of course, this angelic visit is included in Scripture. So it gets to encourage us in more ways because it continues on. And look now how Paul responds to this. He says... The God whom, to whom I belong. Paul knows who he belongs to. He knows his life is not his own, that he was bought with a price. He is God's. You are God's. We belong to him. I mean, the, image, the imagery that's used in Scripture, we belong to him as a bride, belongs to a bridegroom, as a sheep to a shepherd, and as a child to a father. In other words, because we belong to him, we're safe. He says, whom I worship, or some translations say serve. Either word accomplishes the same thing. Because we worship and serve the Almighty Creator who rules and reigns with all power, we can rest assured that nothing can end His plans for us. In other words, until your days that are determined by God are done, nothing can touch you until He determines that your days are done. Paul knew this. As long as I've got work to do, I'm safe. It looks like I'm going to die. I've been told I'm going to Rome. I believe all that. But at the end of the day, I'm still just going to have to trust God because life right now doesn't make sense. Well, you may not have all of those details, but you do have the same promises that God is with you, that He's at work, that He will never leave you and forsake you. And because of that, like Paul, you can trust Him. Paul knows he belongs to God. Paul knows that he serves him. And Paul knows who God is. He knows his character. He trusts him. And he calls others to trust him. And then he adds this piece of information, but we must run aground on some island. Clearly, this was part of the angelic message. This is very specific. And it's exactly what we see happen. But the storm continues. They get this message of hope. Maybe it's all about to be over. I talked about the misery. Have you ever been on a boat? And it continues. Well, 14 days. It goes on. It's now day 14 and they finally begin to hear land. They hear the breakwaters, waters hitting up against the reef and they begin to take soundings to see how shallow it is. They realize that indeed they're getting closer and because they don't want to hit the rocks at night and and, uh, risk breaking the ship apart, they throw all the anchors off the stern of the ship, the back of the ship, And then they pray, verse 29, pray for day to come. The hopelessness is magnified then in verse 30 when we see that the sailors, this is the ship's crew, these are the guys who are supposed to be handling things on the ship, that they are now so desperate they are trying to escape. They're trying to sneak off the ship. And uh, Luke writes that under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So they tell the guys, "Uh, there's nothing to see over here. We're just going to get down in the little boat, the lifeboat thing. We're going to go put some anchors, even though we just threw all the anchors off the stern of the ship. But we're going to go find some magical anchors and throw them off. And, of course, Paul sees through all this. And he says, unless everybody stays on the ship to Julius, you're not going to be safe. And so Julius, a soldier and a practical man, does the thing that any soldier would do and just cuts the ropes and the ship is gone. The little boat is gone. And so now here they are with no ability to get past rocks and reefs. They're all in this together. And now the sun is coming up. Paul urges everyone to eat something. He knows they're going to need a burst of strength. And again, he reminds them, not a hair is to perish from your head. Um, the purpose of the food here, this is not the Lord's Supper that's taking place. The purpose of the food here is simply for sustenance. Uh, Given that most of the ship's crew and passengers were not believers, there's no wine mentioned and there's no preaching of the word that they might examine themselves, it's clearly not the Lord's Supper. Paul is simply trying to get them strengthened because they hadn't eaten. And as the sun comes up, they see the island, they don't recognize it. It's the island of Malta. I encourage you, Look on a map later, not now, uh, or on uh, Google Earth, if you're on your phone, Google Maps, and, and go to the Mediterranean and try to find Malta. It's really, 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 really tiny. And you have to zoom in a lot to see Malta. It's this little speck. And when you zoom in and you see how small Malta is and how big the Mediterranean is, even though when we look at it, it looks small compared to the Atlantic, you can see how God's sovereign hand guided this wandering ship they had no ability to steer. They didn't, even know, they, never, they didn't even recognize Malta when they saw it. They didn't even know how to get there. And yet God brought them exactly to where he wanted them. And so the ship hits the reef, but in the last verse we see that all were brought safely to land. God kept his promise. Of course, the story's not over. We're going to continue to look next week uh, at, as the story unfolds for Paul from here. But what I want us to see is God keeps his promises. He does. And it's truly remarkable in this day, in this particular day that we're looking at, that day and age, in that type of situation, in that kind of ship, that there was no loss of life. It's incredible to think. But you still may be wondering why. Uh, Why does God allow this? Why does God allow the storms of life? Why did Paul have to experience this? Why couldn't he have had a smooth path to Italy? Let me just give three things in closing to hopefully encourage us all. One, storms reshape things and storms bring new life. It's painful to think about, but storms can literally change the landscape. Um, it's painful because there's loss involved in that, isn't there? So when we think of that physically, we can identify things get knocked down, buildings are gone, trees are gone, but we can think of that metaphorically as well. But after the storm, what comes? There's new life. There's new trees, there's new buildings, there's new businesses. And in the same way, the storms of life sometimes clean out the clutter that's in our hearts and our minds. And it's a painful process because there's loss. But the newness that emerges shows us God's redemptive work in our lives, that He is at work. When He said, I'm faithful to complete the work that I started, this work of sanctification that He's doing in between is part of that redemptive work. Yes, we are completely saved, we are justified, and yes, we, the glorification even is talked about in the past tense in Scripture, that it's certain, even though it's yet to come, there is still this process, and it's a loving process, even when it doesn't feel loving, of sanctification. Storms, secondly, are also a testimony for others. They're a testimony of God's judgment, they serve as a warning, but they're also a testimony for encouraging others when they see how we walk in faith. There's a reason why scientists chase storms. They do it because they want to find better ways to predict and to warn. right? And in the same sense, God uses how we handle life's storms as not only an encouragement for others, but a warning for others. People are watching. And then third, and probably most obviously, storms are for our growth. Storms grow us. We've seen this in our hymns and, and, and the things that we've read today. They're a tool for God's growth in our lives. We look at a story like Pilgrim's Progress and we see this told out, but we also look at a story like Lord of the Rings and we see how the journey was the story. It wasn't the destination. I mean, the destination was and it was, that was the goal, but the journey was a part of the destination. It was the whole experience. And so somehow... Even though our destination is what we long for and it's the greatest thing to come, this is still a part of it. God is using it. This is not wasted time. The storms in your life are not just some kind of painful experience that you have to get through to get to the other side. It is a part of the process of God's loving work in your life. For whatever reason, God did not just decide to justify you and immediately glorify you. It is painful, but it's also glorious. It's mysterious. It's painful. It causes us to be dependent on Him. It's encouraging and discouraging at the same time. And it's painful. This is the work of sanctification, but it's God's work. And He is right there with you, closer than you can imagine. And so while none of us may pray for storms or none of us may welcome storms in this life... We can face any storm because we know we are our Redeemers and our Redeemer is ours. Let's pray. Lord, as it storms outside, what a reminder that we are yours and that you hold us in your hand. That no thing, person, event, power, force, storm can thwart your plan. And so we rest in you knowing that we are yours, that we've been bought with a price that we worship and serve you, and until your time for us is over, we're safe in your hand, and we'll be perfectly safe in your hand on the other side of this life, Lord. And as we look forward to that day, I pray that you would give us great strength and grace and mercy as we weather the storms of life. May we trust you, and may as we walk through these storms, then be a testimony to others. That they would see the hope that we have in you, that they would see your marvelous grace, and that they would be drawn to it, and that you would use that to save them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.